This is the Real Estate Investing for Freedom podcast, where we bring on the experts to teach you the golden nuggets of real estate investing so you can escape the rat race and start living life on your terms. Now, here's your host, Dalen Hazel. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of the Real Estate Investing for Freedom podcast. I'm thrilled that you're here. You're going to love our interview today with a super down-to-earth guy who is just killing it in real estate. We talk about retirement, the 401k, how he finally settled on real estate investing and why he thinks it's the best investment vehicle, how to get started in real estate, and a whole lot more. But before we do that, here's today's golden nugget of the day. Today's golden nugget is start finding your own deals. If you're a real estate investor or you just want to be one, don't solely rely on other people to bring you deals. A wholesaler who's basically a deal finder or a real estate agent can and should bring you deals, but the best ones you find on your own. This can be as simple as walking your neighborhood, seeing an ugly house, then hitting up the owner, or it could be as robust as launching a large scale direct mail campaign across your whole city. The point is start finding your own deals and you'll run across opportunities you didn't know were out there. So with that said, let me introduce today's guest. Eric Martel purchased his first apartment building at just 18 years of age while still at university. Along the way, he has started multiple different businesses like a gourmet sauce company, but eventually he came back to his first love of real estate investing. After just four years of rapid success, he was able to retire from his day job. He wants to share with you what he learned so you don't have to make the same mistakes that he did. Without further ado, here is episode three of the Real Estate Investing for Freedom podcast. Welcome to the show, Eric. How are you doing today? Very good. Thank you for having me. Thank you for uh, coming on. So, Eric, I know that you are a real estate investor, entrepreneur. You're very passionate about financial freedom. So I think you're a perfect fit for this show. So other than what was shared, uh, can you tell listeners a little bit about yourself, your background, Mm -hmm. how you got started in real estate? Yeah, I mean, my first apartment building or my first investment was an apartment building, an eight-unit apartment building when I was still at university. I bought it, no money down. and um, But at that time, I didn't really have any grand plan. My only, uh, you know, I was 18 years old. I was not thinking passive income. I was not thinking early retirement. But I knew that uh, what I wanted to do, I, I've seen my parents work nine to five and just being living paycheck to paycheck. I mean, we were not poor, but we were also not rich. I mean, everything we uh, we had, we had to save for and, uh, you know, and cherish for a while. Um, and so I knew that this is not, uh, this is not the life I wanted. I wanted to have more freedom. I wanted to have a little bit more money, but really it was not, it was not about money. It was about freedom, about being able to go travel. And my parents traveled only to, uh, you know, to Paris once and to Spain. So their two lifetime, they traveled twice out of the country. And I was just, I thought that was ridiculous. And um, so that's why I wanted to, uh, I, I wanted something else uh, for myself. And when I went to university, I was introduced to a guy that was just a regular uh, college teacher. 
uh, community college teacher. I don't know what he was teaching. He was not teaching finance or anything, anything about that. Probably not. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. And um, I, I was amazed. Like he was just a regular salary. Uh, and then he managed to, to build a 36 unit apartment building. Mm-hmm. He was, was positive cash flow. He was doing great. He was planning to uh, create a, a shop to build a shopping mall. Last time I saw him. So just amazing that he was able to do all that. And, um, you know, and so that I thought when I saw him and I talked to him, I said, well, just show me that's, <laughs> that's basically it. And he agreed to, to mentor me. And that first eight unit apartment building was really the, the test for me to show that even at 18 years old, uh, I was able to, you know, buy an eight unit apartment building that was had positive cash flow. I had no money. Uh, so the, the seller basically gave me a second mortgage on the property. So I had a first mortgage with a credit union. So that's kind of how I got started. It was not glamorous or anything like that. But at, at that point, I knew like I had the shift in mindset that said that it's possible to do something like this. So I have to ask you, how does an 18 year old get a hold of such a large asset at that time, especially with no money. Can you kind of mm-hmm. dive into the specifics on how you did that? Is it even still viable strategy today? Like what type of strategy were you implementing there? Yeah. So I think it's still, it's still feasible today, but it takes a lot of work. It takes a lot more work than if you have money in the bank, everything is easier with money. You can do things without money, but with money, it's, everything is easier. Right. And, uh, yeah. I think everybody talks about no money down investing, but really, even if you can get into a property with little to no money, you should still have the reserves in place because you can really get in some hot water without any reserves. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And so uh, basically, you know, I I was talking to a a realtor to show me all kinds of properties. Uh, I couldn't go residential. I didn't have any W2 income, so I couldn't, I can get a residential loan. Mm-hmm. But a commercial loan, you can do that because it's based on the asset. It's based on the cash flow of the property. So, so that worked out great. And, uh, but working with the realtor and convincing him that there was a property like that, that I could buy, get a loan and I have the vendor take a property and it would still cash flow. So that was the challenge. And then the realtor kept telling me, no, 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 that's, you can't find that. That's not possible. And every time he would show me properties that didn't work. Because he wasn't his, in his point of view, it was not possible. So he kept finding the things that were not possible. Mm-hmm. But if you, if you think that, I don't know, there's something that's possible, then you just keep looking. You just say, well, this is one that's not working. This is, you know, and you just keep looking. And it takes a lot of looking, I must say. Uh, he, uh, the realtor in those days, there was no computer. So you can just get a search criteria, export everything in a spreadsheet and find the right property. So he, he to shut me up one week and he just gave me the, all the MLS listing that he had printed, hmm. which was like four binders. And, uh, he said, just, just take it, take it with you for the weekend. And then, um, let, let me know if you find anything. Just. I thought it was basically to shut me up, but I went through all the listing. There was probably, I don't know how many, but it was like four binders full of MLS listing. And I would just go like, I had a quick rule of thumb, uh, basically a 1% rule. Uh, mm-hmm. It was not called the 1% rule then, but I had kind of like uh, looked at that and I was just, okay, well, this one's not working. This one's not working. This one's not working. And I kept going at it. 
I think at the end, I probably found like two or three properties that uh, that worked, met my criteria uh, in terms of cash flow. Now, the next problem was to find the the vendor, the seller that was would be willing to give me either the whole property, a uh, uh, financing for the whole property or a financing for a portion of the property. So, and then that's so why I found a seller that was willing to take a second, a second mortgage, a second position on the property. Okay. So because you took that second position, does that mean you owned the property still or how, how does that yeah. all work? Can you explain that? Yeah, so it's, it's just basically it's a, kind of having two loans, two liens on the property. Uh, right now, a lot of the loans that you're getting in first position, uh, they don't allow a second lien position. They don't allow you to have a second loan on uh, on the same property. There are ways around that as well. But the um, but basically, yeah. So I mean, in my situation, the the credit union allowed me to take uh, a second lien position with uh, with the seller. So basically, you end up with two loans, two loan payments, two mortgage uh, on the property. And um, so that's how I was able to do that. And you were able to capitalize on the commercial financing because it mm-hmm. was greater than four units. Is that correct? Mm-hmm. That's right. So, yeah. Yeah. so for those of you who, who don't know, um, you use residential financing on properties from one to four units, correct, Eric? That's right. And yes. then commercial financing kicks in for the five units and above. That's right. And the nice thing about that was they didn't care about your W2 income, like you said. So for an 18 year old, that sounded great, right? But you had to have a good enough deal, right? So was the deal really strong? Well, it was cash flowing. So from the the first lien position perspective, the the credit union, they were looking at it, giving me 80% 80 of the mortgage, um, 80 or 75% of the mortgage. And then the rest of it, they would say, uh, you know, they would look at the cash flow and say, yeah, it's cash flowing. So it's all asset based. They look at the uh, at your P and L, your 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 projected P and L, and they say, yeah, it's, we're going to get paid. We, we're not worried. And then, uh, yeah, they issued a loan. Right, right. Yeah, I just yeah. refinanced one of my properties under a commercial loan, and they told me that they look very uh, scrupulously at the debt to coverage ratio. Exactly. Uh, so yeah. they want to make sure that your rents will cover the debt service at a certain yeah, ratio. But exactly. if you have a good banker in your back pocket, they, they'd be happy to explain that uh, more in depth. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I know and also talk- the, the residential so- loans, there's also a lot more regulation on the residential loan. You also have uh, other options here. There are other uh, non-bank uh, lenders here, like hard money lenders or private money lenders that, uh, that can lend you money on these, on these properties. The seller, he or she may allow to, uh, to take the full loan and say, you know, somebody that bought the, the property like half a million dollars and now is selling it to you for $2 million, maybe he's looking for passive income. And he said, yeah, okay, I'll, I'll lend you the money, the one point, the $2 million and you at uh, 7%. Mm-hmm. And you pay me every month and say, okay. So it's, it is possible. There are other ways of doing it, but it is possible for you to invest in something that, uh, that don't require you to put any money down. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'd love to talk more about that. That, that could be in a show in and of itself, creative financing and yeah. getting, getting creative with all those strategies. But the main thing I think you're an expert on just reading your book is kind of, working on people's mindsets and debunking the traditional beliefs, especially about retirement. So Mm -hmm. 
let me ask you this. What is the future of retirement in your opinion, as far as like 401ks and pensions and the, the, the IRAs? And how did we get in this position where hardly any people invest in real estate, but everyone is gung-ho about those traditional <laughs> retirement vehicles? Well, they have a bigger marketing budget. Uh, so that's the problem. <laughs> and they make, they make huge fees and all of that. So they, uh, it, it makes sense for the, for Wall Street. It makes a lot of sense, uh, to, to advertise and get the funds into these 401k and then they invest for people. Um, it's a lot of, so there are advantages. I mean, I, I don't want to say that 401ks are bad or IRAs are bad. I think I'm just say, saying that these are tools. And then when you're thinking about retirements, um, I mean, the, the, the playing field has changed dramatically since uh, the eighties. Um, I mean, you don't remember, you haven't worked in the eighties, but, uh, in, when you worked in, uh, in a company in those days or prior to the uh, 1980, I mean, you would work, you would have a corporate pension plan and the corporate pension plan would say at retirement, we're going to give you 2% of your final salary multiplied by uh, the years of service that you work there. So if you work for the company for 25 years, you would, we're going to pay you, the company guaranteed that they would pay 50%, 0.02 times 25 times the final salary. So 50% of your final salary at retirement, that's what they would guarantee. Then the rest would be coming from your um, pension plan, your, your um, social security and then the rest, you know, the, the if there's anything else that you want to cover, then it would be your savings and investment. Mm -hmm. So that pension plan has gone completely. I mean, the only people that have it right now is the government, uh, government employees, some large corporations that have unions. Uh, but as we know, unions are, you know, on the decline. I've been on the decline for the same um, period of time that the retirement has been on the decline. So, uh, so right now they've converted everybody into these 401k plans. And these 401ks, uh, even though it's a good tool, the problem is that there's no guarantee. It's a savings account that is tax-free or tax-deferred. And then it's at retirement. You have to figure out how you, as, a, as an employee or as a person, how are you going to convert that cash, that investment, into a stream of income? And that's what nobody is talking about. And I think that's, uh, that's critically important. And so I had a whole chapter uh, in my book talking about that and how to basically look at this and all the different ways to convert that passive income, uh, that uh, investment and savings into uh, different passive income streams. Right. Yeah, there's nothing inherently wrong with those retirement programs. And if you're going to only do one, then you should at least do one, right? Um, mm -hmm. But the problem is relying on a lump sum at the end of your life versus relying on a stream of passive income. Would yeah. you agree? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, that's what you have to do. I mean, this is why I think everybody's number one goal should be uh, financial freedom. Um, it's inevitable. We're all going to want to spend more time with friends and family. We all want to travel. You know, everybody wants to travel three months in Europe or to spend half the year in, uh, in Mexico or whatnot. So everybody wants that. Um, but in order to do this, that you need to have passive income. You need to have income that's going to be, uh, coming in when you're sleeping, when you're vacationing, when, you know, all of that. And, uh, so 
that's why I think that the focus, you need to calculate kind of how much, that's your first step really, is calculate how much you need per month to, uh, to achieve that. And, um, so, and then there's different ways of doing that. Real estate, in my opinion, is probably the best, uh, way to, um, to achieve that goal and start early on, invest in real estate as early as possible, rental properties. And then, um, you have tax benefits. You can use leverage. You can, and you have positive cash flow. I mean, this is, uh, this is an amazing investment. You don't have that in other investment. You don't have that in mutual funds. You don't have that in, um, you know, in the stock market or uh, other investment in gold, in Bitcoin. You don't have any of that. Yeah, you're exactly right. Because I heard a survey or rather it was a statistic the other day and it said the median individual has $212,000 at the end of their life. So that would be median. So as many people uh, above that and below that. And I thought that was startling because that's not even enough to live off of. If you wanted to create an income stream off of that, for Mm -hmm. example, a lot of people brag about the 4% rule. So you withdraw 4% of your portfolio a year, 4% Mm -hmm. of 212,000 is not enough monthly to live on, at least in my opinion, I don't know where it could be. So can you kind of explain why for a person like that, real estate is essential because Mm -hmm. it creates that additional stream of income? Exactly. And then people want to avoid, uh, everybody wants to reduce their income tax. Mm-hmm. So real estate is perfect for that. Um, so even though you're getting ca- positive cash flow, you're also able to deduct the interest, the property, uh, and depreciation, property taxes and depreciation on the building. So you end up net net, you end up, uh, either like with zero or negative that you can then offset against your, uh, your W2 income in reducing your taxes. So there's not too many investments that do that. And it can still ap- appreciate on the market. So you depreciate it on your taxes and then you, it appreciates on the market. So it's just, yeah. and the tax code is made for real estate investment. And it is. it's just unbelievable. So it is. You should take yeah. advantage of that. It's geared towards investors, whether you're buying a single family residence or a multi-million dollar commercial deal. So mm-hmm. definitely uh, your taxes are on your side for real estate investors. Um, I'm going to hold your feet to the fire on this. And this yep. is not investment advice. This is totally Uh-oh. your opinion. <laughs> Should a 20 something like myself even consider contributing to a 401k or an IRA given what we've talked about so far? So I would prefer to see that same uh, 20-year-old invest in a single-family rental property. Uh, I think that the tax benefits are going to be better. Remember, the 401k is uh, is only uh, is only tax deferred. Taking the money out later on is going to be very difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then at one point, after a certain age, you're going to have to be, you're going to be forced to take a certain percentage of your, uh, of the 401k, whether you like it or not. So, so I would prefer if you want to do some kind of, uh, of investment, I would prefer definitely to do a single family rental. You're going to get positive cash flow. It's going to appreciate, and then you're going to be able to retire in, you know, 10, 10 years, something like that. And uh, so 401k, not so sure. So, Right. I like to think of the scenario, if you bought 
one single family house every year for 20 years. Yeah. And each one is $250 a month cash flow. Yeah. You have at least $4,500 a month at the end of that 20 years. And exactly. it's very easy to buy one house a year. I'll tell you that. I mean, if yeah. you're at least diligent in any sort of way. So, but if you contrast that to the typical um, 401k where you have to wait, you know, 40 years, then if you're going for the same goal, which is financial freedom, that's what mm-hmm. our main goal should be in your opinion, yeah. then it doesn't really matter. The only thing that matters is the results, right? So yeah, the, the exactly. income coming in. So yeah. I would rather it take me 20 years versus 40 years. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I think everyone would agree on that, but it's, yeah. it's a shift in mindset and you can certainly do both. But as you said, you would prefer the mm-hmm. starting off with a single family rental. I think so. I think you have, you, you have the advantage of leverage, uh, first of yes. all, uh, and it's passive. Um, so in yes. 401k, if you do mutual fund, then, then it's not, it's not passive income, right? So mm-hmm. they take a fee every year. They take a 1% or 1% or 2% fee every year. Uh, the, uh, and then it's, it is passive from that perspective, but then you, you're, uh, you know, the ups and downs of the stock market. Uh, if you want to do something uh, that is more active, then you you can use leverage then uh, on options, for example, and that that would be you could use leverage for that. But then it's not passive income anymore. So that's why I like that's one of the reasons why I like if I had to kind of like start from a blank uh, sheet of paper and say, OK, what what do I want out of an investment vehicle? I want maximum leverage. I want tax advantage. I want appreciation and cash flow. Well, there's only <laughs> there's only a, a few of those that uh, meet all that, and it's uh, it's real estate, mm-hmm. real estate rentals. Yes. So, kind of to this point, why are people not achieving financial independence? Then is it because they're not investing in rentals? Is it because they're not spending their money wisely? Why are people not achieving this goal, this one thing which we should be striving after? Yeah, and I think part of it is is the goal, the goal setting. I think um, people are looking; they're looking to their financial uh, planner that is really a, a salesperson. Most of them are salespeople for uh, uh, for an investment company from Goldman Sachs or E Trade or whatever. These financial planners uh, they're just salespeople. They sell products that they they have. They're not never going to sell you. Uh, you know, real estate or anything like that, or any kind of real estate investment, they're going to sell you a stock in real estate or something, but not that. So, and so these, these people, they're not really planning backwards. So they're not saying, okay, well, how much do you need per, per month to, in order to achieve your financial goal? And then, okay, where should you invest from that? And then start, start investing from that, from that perspective, um, the, and that's, that's what I think is, is a key thing is because your goal has to be something that you can see, uh, that, that helps you focus on what, what you want to do. Right. So I call that in my book, I call that fiat goal. So it's something that helps you focus so that as soon as you, you do something that is contrary to your goal, you know, it like it, it you know, it doesn't make sense. And, um, so, and that's, and something that's going to inspire you, something that's going to be track, that you're going to be able to track finally. And, uh, so that the tracking part is really having that goal set as a monthly passive income goal. 
And then let's say you set it up. So I, in the book, I talk about how to calculate it, but let's say it's $5,000 a month. And then if you do that, set that up, if you want to do that on the stock market or something like that on some index fund or the 4% rule, I mean, you can kind of like play with that also on your, on your portfolio and see how that would play out. But, um, if you do that with real estate, then you just start accumulating one house at a time. As you mentioned, like one house, uh, I get $250 a month in that cash flow. I can see right away that I'm getting $250 closer to my goal of $5,000 a month. Yes, I need to do more. But as you mentioned, if I do one every year like that, I mean, after 20 houses, I'm going to be very, very close to my goal. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I think, yeah, it's a goal problem. It's not outlining that early in one's life about what do I want in retirement? How much money do I need? How much money do I want? It's also mismanagement. I think people will just stick money in their retirement vehicles and just hope for the best, hope that Wall Street takes care of them, or worse yet, they left it in a you know, a cash account this whole time. <laughs> and now they're yeah, ready to exactly, retire. Right? It's all, it's all invested in cash or something crazy. Yep. And, yep. or maybe they're told, Hey, if you just, if your company will do 3%, they'll match 3%. Well, I just need mm-hmm. to put in 3% and then I'm done. Mm-hmm. And yeah. it's a really lack of thinking. And a lot of times I think that real estate's easier because once you buy it, then you don't need to there is an element of management, but it doesn't require looking at financials or company charts or yeah. uh, prospectuses. So in a way, I think real estate's kind of a level playing field where anybody can succeed. The average working person can succeed. So, And I think if you look at, uh, I mean, you, ma- you mentioned the 4% uh, you know, uh, distribution, I forget what it's called, but the cash out, the 4% cash out. Yeah. Uh, method uh, for cre- generating passive income. So th- if you just look at that, how much money you need to to do this, this is very feasible. And I, if you want to do that, that, I mean, that's fine. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, And the idea here is that, okay, but at retirement or whenever I want to retire, I'm going to take 4% of that, uh, of that amount of money that I need. And then I'm going to take, take it out. And then that's what I'm going to, I'm going to leave. Uh, use on. And the idea is that uh, the stock market is going up at 7%. So, you know, I should be pretty good for a long time. Yes, they're going to be ups and down. And uh, some days I'm going to do better, but I'm still only going to take 4%. Uh, and actually, so you take the 4% only the first year, the second year, you take the the initial 4% and you adjust for inflation after that. So the yeah. 4% is really used only that. So So even if you have a very good year, then you're just going to take 4% plus the inflation. So the, um, and that's, that's a good plan, but the plan is going to be, if you want to do $5,000 a month, that means you're going to need $1.5 million uh, in the bank, in, in assets and in investments in order to generate that. So yeah, if you have that, if you want, so that should be your goal, then you say, okay, well, I need to get that in order to, to do my 4%. But really think about, uh, all your listeners should really think about all the investments that I'm doing. How are the, are they going to be converted into a stream of income, a passive mm-hmm. stream of income at retirement? Yeah, certainly. Cause that's what yeah. matters, right? It, if you retire with 2 million, so what? Yeah. I want to know 
how much are you withdrawing from that 2 million yeah. monthly? Because that's going to define your lifestyle, how you live, how you give mm-hmm. and how you spend your time. So the next question I have is why should financial freedom be everyone's number one goal? You made a bold statement earlier about that. Well, I think it's inevitable. So whether you like it or not, I think it's uh, you're going to want to retire. We all want to spend more time with family and friends, travel, etc. And we're all going to get old. At one point, you won't be able to work. Um, you may want to try to work, uh, but it's going to be very hard. There's just so many Walmart greeters that are needed. And um, so... That's that's one that's one thing about that. At one point, your income is gonna is gonna stop. Um, but also, we're getting into much more of a gig economy right now. Mm. So even the jobs that uh, I mean, you know, in the '80s and earlier, I mean, working 20 years for uh, for a company was very normal. You would get like a gold watch and all of that. Yeah. And uh, now who works 20 years? Nobody works 20 years for a same company. This yeah. is uh, inconceivable. And um, so and that's changing. That's that's part of it. Uh, the other part of it is that even the, the full-time job is, uh, is changing as well. A lot of these full-time employees are now independent contractors, independent workers. I mean, you see what's happening with Uber, for example, and Lyft. Um, they just won something uh, very significant here in uh, in California, where they are allowed to call their the people that work for them uh, contractors instead of full time employees. So that makes that makes a big difference. That means you don't have any benefits, you don't have any of that. You have to pay for all, all these things, and um, and for that reason, if you have a downtime. If, for example, you can't drive or if you're an independent contractor, even though you're making great, uh, good, uh, good money, let's say you're a software developer uh, working as an independent contractor, uh, you know, you want to take two, two weeks off, you want to take two months off. Well, that means that's money that's not coming in. Um, so it would be nice to have a little bit of, uh, of passive income that's coming in to actually smooth out what I call these uh, uh peaks and valleys of income that's uh, that happens very uh, frequently in uh, in the gig economy so that's the other that's the other reason why you would want to have um, to have passive income and invest in real estate mm-hmm. yeah i know there's a hiring crisis right now everywhere i go there's now hiring signs but that's for a lot of the um lower uh, wage jobs frankly um yep. but Sometimes I think about in my own career accounting that, you know, my job could just be outsourced at any moment because as technology increases, the appearance of, you know, remote workers overseas goes up, then it makes me think, you know, wow, I, this full-time job, this traditional career isn't as safe as I once thought it was when I was going through college and my more coursework. And, you know, your promise from your professors and your mentors early on, oh, you know, get, get a job. It'll be great. You'll have job security. You'll be able to rely on a paycheck. But I don't know if that's really sound advice anymore because the world is moving towards gig economy, more technical, specialized work, and the lower wage jobs are, you know, moving overseas. Or if it can be outsourced, 
it is outsourced. For example, bookkeeping. Mm-hmm. That's a good example. Yeah. Bookkeeping is something that a robot yeah, can bookkeep- do. My bookkeeper is in, uh, is in uh, India. Exactly. So why hire a yeah. CPA firm to do yeah. your bookkeeping at triple, quadruple the cost? It just yeah. doesn't make yeah. sense. No. And so I think it's, so that, that uh, offshoring has been happening a lot over the last, you know, maybe 10 years, 15 years. And um, it happened a lot in technology, software development uh, outside, like in India and, uh, you know, in Asia in general, there's a lot of uh, a very good school, very good technical schools. So we've seen that shift already. I mean, when I was working um, in the field before, you know, I would I had a, half the team was actually in India or Asia or some or something like that. And uh, so just to lower the cost, they had only a few critical people here in California, but the rest was basically offshore. And now with um, with the pandemic uh, and more people moving uh, that are want to work from home. Some of them have already moved out of expensive places like California. And mm-hmm. uh, now they're out there, wherever they are, uh, in the Midwest, somewhere in Memphis or Cleveland or, uh, you know, whatnot. They're working. They're having a great lifestyle because, you know, they, uh, they have good salary. And then they're in, the, in a fairly inex- much more inexpensive place than California. And they're enjoying it. But now their boss in uh, California is, is, is she or he is working with you remotely the same way that they're working with somebody in India remotely. And um, so that whole, so now you're kind of becoming in the same marketplace of, uh, as these other people. That's mm-hmm. all the offshore people. And I think that's going to cause a pressure, a downward pressure on the rates for all the people that want to work uh, from home. I think with what I'm seeing with Uber as well, they might consider you now an independent contractor, convert these full-time employees into uh, independent contractors instead and say, oh, if you want to work from home, just become an independent contractor and we'll give you this rate and stuff like that. It's great for the... Uh, it's great for the employer because they don't have to pay all the benefits and all of that. And, uh, and it seems good for you because I, I get to work from home. I get a good rate. I'm my own boss. But, uh, but what happens is that now you're, you're really competing with everybody else and you could be, you know, off one month because now your employer can say, well, I, I don't need you next month. Uh, come back in, uh, in October or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, so now you're going to have a lot of these ups and downs in um, in your income. And again, reinforcing the fact that, you know, just starting to work on that passive income is uh, is very important. That yeah. was a long answer. I'm sorry about that. No, <laughs> you're spot on because you're going to have to find ways to separate yourself in yeah. primarily the white collar American mm-hmm. that modern day just because yeah. your job can so easily be outsourced by technology or people overseas. Yeah. But I have to ask, are you planning on moving away from California anytime soon? Yeah, I'm thinking eventually, maybe. Yeah, I, I'm looking at uh, obviously the taxes here are, you know, incredible. But I live in uh, on, close to the beach here in uh, L.A. Um, so unfortunately, I enjoy it a lot. <laughs> so maybe when I enjoy it less. Uh, uh, yeah, so we're, we're looking, we're exploring some different areas. I just came back actually from Mexico. Uh, Cabo and then kind of looking at 
you know, what it would feel like to, uh, to live there part time. Mm -hmm. But we're also looking at Europe or, you know, other places. A lot to think about. So yeah. I want to dive into the actual specifics because in the earlier part of the show, you recommend you'd like to see an 18 year old, 22 year old, whatever, start off with your single family or just real mm -hmm. estate in general. So how does a person that's super excited about this episode, how do they go from here and find their first investment property? Well, so there are, so you, you have for turnkey, uh, turnkey providers. So a turnkey provider is basically someone that they've done all the work for you. So they've basically, they bought the property, they renovated it, found the tenant, and then they, they connect you with uh, the lender, with the insurance company, with the property management company, and it's cash flowing basically. So all the work is done for you. You as a, the, as a first time investor, you continue to do your, your day job, your W2 job. You keep saving for a down payment. Once you get that, you just buy and buy a house. Um, so yeah, so you search on Google for a turnkey, uh, rental provider and there's quite a few. Uh, hopefully at the top of that list should be martelturnkey.com. <laughs> I had to put a plug in there, but, yeah. uh, so that's my company and that's, that's exactly what we do. We buy distressed properties and my recommendation is to kind of build up your passive income portfolio until you have, you know, that goal that we talked about that monthly passive income goal. If you get close to that, like 80% or 90% of that, then it gives you, well, before that is going to give you some sense of freedom, but at 80, 90%. Um, so if you feel like you want to retire early or you want to take time off or something like that, then that's a good time to do that. Or if you want to kind of go deeper into real estate, that's a good time to do that. And then because some of these other strategies, so in, in my book, I also have like the strategy quadrant. Mm -hmm. And where I kind of sort out these, uh, the different real estate investment strategies that are, uh, that generate uh, passive income uh, based on the risk and the time that it needs to get it started. So at the beginning, really, there's a, there are only a few. There's turnkey rentals, there's uh, private money lending. Um, so these are probably the two that I would start with if that's what you want to do. And, uh, and then the other ones like the Burr strategy and all of that, they're a little bit more risky because you have, you have, you handle the own renovations and they're also more time consuming because you have to find the right market. You have to find the property. You have to, so there's a more, more handholding. Uh, there's no handholding. So everything you have to do yourself, find a contractor and all of that and manage that. Mm -hmm. So. Um, so that's kind of my recommendation, build, build a passive income portfolio till you get to 80. And if you really want to get fully into the, uh, the real estate investment field, then you, you just quit your job and, and do it full time. And then you'll be, uh, you'll be fine. You're going to have even more tax advantages because then you're going to be considered a real estate professional, and then you'll be able to offset even more uh, taxes. Yeah. Yeah. So let me unpack that. You mentioned one strategy turnkey. That is a strategy. It's not the only strategy to start out with, obviously, but it's great for working professionals or people already set in their career who are busy during the daytime hours where they can just, you know, find a deal with someone like you or another turnkey provider and the management's already done for them, the rehab and, and so forth. Personally, I do the more active approach because I'm looking for the highest returns possible, but definitely turnkey can be a, a great option. So I recommend looking into, you know, more active approaches 
or turnkey definitely when starting out. Yeah, that's right. So yes, I totally agree. If you do like a burst strategy or something where you're going to get more involved, Definitely a better return. I totally Can you explain agree what with that. the burst strategy is for those who may not? Oh, the burst strategy is basically you buy the distressed property yourself. Uh, you do the renovations yourself. So that means you have a contractor or you, you hold a hammer. Uh, and then you rent it out, uh, you refinance it, and then you, uh, you repeat, you do it again. Mm-hmm. This is a great strategy. My, uh, my issue with that, unless it's in your back, if it's in your backyard, it's probably not so bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if it's remote, then it's, it gets very complicated very quickly. Uh, it's a little bit more risky and obviously it takes more time because you have to do, you have to do all of that. You have to do find the right property, put an offer in. You know, you're going to need more money uh, unless you do a, a, some kind of bridge financing, construction financing or whatnot. So you're going to need way more money to get started. Uh, the contractor, you're going to have to deal with that. And that's that's a job and it's on itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so finding the right one, assuming you found the right one, then finding the tenant. Uh, and then probably you can work that through your property management company. Um, I, I, if you want to build a passive income portfolio, you should consider having a property management company to uh, to get you going. And then uh, the refinancing. So again, this is more work on your side to find a lender that's going to be willing to refinance and then deal with the appraisals and all that kind of stuff. With us, like with uh, turnkey providers, everything is done for you. So you kind of there we and we hold your hand. We We do all of that for you. Very cool. Yeah, thanks for explaining that more in detail. So what are the barriers to achieving financial freedom? Because I know when I talk to people or maybe they listen to this show, they're like, oh, that's interesting. That's cool. But then they don't do anything with that knowledge. So is it because they have a lack of resources, a lack of time, lack of knowledge? What is the primary driver that people are not achieving this? So I think there there are a couple of things. I think they don't feel the urgency uh, mm-hmm. that this is something that they need to do. Um, and they think that, you know, whatever things they've been told by their financial planner is everything is fine. So that's, that's my first thing. And maybe things are fine. So if you have, if you do have $1.5 million in the bank and you want to make $5,000 a month at retirement, then maybe you're fine. Um, if you're not there, and as you mentioned, the average uh, investment uh, for people that are, I think that's people that are around 40, 55 years old is $212,000. That's the median, actually. Mm-hmm. So um, it's not nowhere close to $1.5 million. So, um, so from that perspective, I mean, if you think that you're comfortable, you're on track, well, do the calculation. Look at how am I going to do this and how do I get there? Uh, so that sense of urgency, I think, is missing on a lot of people. And I think, uh, yeah, that's something that they need to do. Then after that, it's a lack of knowledge. Um, and again, this is where the turnkey kind of makes it easy for them, because then all the calculations are done for you. You see what the end result is. Um, and then as you have more time, um, so that's the, the other components, too, is the, having the time and the resources to to put to that. If you have more time to search for properties, then you know what the end result is. Then you can look for properties and then kind of do the do the math backwards for what you need to buy it at, what the rehab bid should be at, 
what the rent should be and all of that and kind of work it backwards like that. But it takes time to do that. And um, so, yeah, so that's, that's kind of, and it takes more money to do that as well. So these two components of the resources are, are important. And finally, I mean, there's a lot of components, as, as you see, like we've talked about a lot of different components. And, and this is why I have that uh, strategy alignment uh, triangle, because all these things, they need to be aligned. Um, if your goal is to achieve financial freedom and you start doing flips and stuff like that, um, this could be a good way to build capital in the, at the beginning but this is not your strategy for achieving financial freedom because this is not, this is not passive, right? You have mm-hmm. to do one deal at a time. Mm-hmm. You have to look at, and then at the bottom of the triangle, then we have like the, the, the resources and the markets. So finding the, uh, looking at the resources that you have and the resources that are lacking and then finding the right market for, uh, for the resources that you have in the strategy you're trying to implement. We've been trying at the beginning, when we got started, we were trying to do uh, things in, in the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area. And if you don't have like $2 million in, a, in your pocket, uh, just kind of forget about it <laughs> because mm-hmm. it's not, it's not going to happen. So uh, the numbers don't make sense. And then even if you do that, the return is not that great based on the, your cash on cash return. You're going to put a lot of cash in order to, to get you know, a few returns. The absolute numbers might, be, might look good. I say, oh, I made a profit of $200,000 or $300,000. But $300,000 on $2 million on a one and a half year project, this is not a good return. Yeah, it's a very important to look at your return on your money, which yeah. you mentioned in an excerpt in your book. Make sure you're looking at the return and not just how much you're earning. Because, yeah, if you're earning forty thousand dollars on two million, you know that's different from earning forty thousand dollars on five hundred thousand. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Definitely. And that's one of the challenges too. Like we talk, I'm talking to a lot of people because I'm in California, I would say, and then um, so I talk to a lot of people here, investors. And then, um, yeah, I mean, I tell them, I say, oh, you can make $250 uh, in cash flow, net, net cash flow a month. And it's just kind of like 250. That, that's how much I make like in a day like, mm-hmm. or, or in a couple of hours. Yeah. So it's kind of like, like, why would I do that and uh, get to the trouble? But it's not, it's passive and it's there's tax benefit, as you may mentioned, and it's a lot of other advantages. Right. And as that continues to stack on top and top of each other, it gets mm-hmm. a lot more impressive than the exactly. $250. And yeah. that's just the cash flow. That's not including all the other benefits of real yeah. estate. And I think you mentioned for the, the young people, the, especially the young people, like 20 year old and all uh, the millennials in general, <clears throat> I think that they feel a lot of pressure, I think, to, to buy their first home. And I think it, it mm-hmm. could make sense in where, where you are in the, in the central part of the United States. I think it may make sense, but I see young people, millennials having the same pressure here in California and they're just chasing the down payment. Mm-hmm. You know, they keep saving, they save like $200,000 to buy a house and then only to be told that, oh no, you need 250 now. And because the price went up and, the, mm-hmm. and it just keep going and going and they never, they never get there. And, um, and I think my strategy for them would be to invest in, uh, turnkey rentals or rental properties in, uh, in cash flowing markets, like the ones that we, we're talking about, like Memphis, Cleveland, and uh, St. Louis and, uh, and rent, 
you can find amazing. Like I sold my house here in California. I had a house in California. I sold it. It was costing me like $6,000 a month, uh, including property taxes, insurance, blah, blah, blah. And, um, and then I was able to rent another house for about the same price. It was mm. bigger with a view, nicer neighborhood, but I was only renting. I didn't, I didn't have to worry about, uh, you know, about repairs or maintenance or anything like that. So I was way better off. And then I unlocked the entire equity of my house and invest in real estate. Yeah. I think if you're looking for affordable housing and you really want your own place, you don't want to just rent from somebody else. You should at the very minimum look into house hacking, which is basically, you know, renting mm -hmm. out other rooms or units, any way you can reduce your housing costs. That's going to set you far and above everybody yeah. else, because yeah. you're going to have all that extra income to allocate towards investing. Yeah. yeah. So why do you specifically help the middle class in your new book, Stop Trading Your Time for Money? I know it's in the tagline there, helping mm -hmm. the middle class, you know, achieve financial freedom. Why the middle class and why not the upper or the lower class? Because the upper class typically, I mean, if you look at the curve, you talked about the median uh, amount of savings. Uh, so that's 50% of the people, the, the workers have $212,000 in savings. And, and then 50% of the people are below that. Yeah, actually, uh, the, the average is like 1.1 million, but because there's billionaires that skews that data. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and, um, but yeah, so that means that when you get into that, uh, you know, so there's 50%, they need help, definitely. Mm -hmm. uh, then there's still a lot more that, uh, that could be help above the $212,000. And uh, like you mentioned, yeah, the average looks good. I mean, if you see, yeah. if you see the average, you say, oh, yeah, the, the uh, people are great. Everybody's not going to have any problems. Uh, you know, everyone's retiring. at least a millionaire looks yeah, like exactly. So there's no problem. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but yeah, I mean, this is, that's because we have people that have like a hundred billion dollars and, and then they don't have to worry about anything. Mm -hmm. So that's why I want to help the, the middle class, the, the working class, uh, because they're the one that uh, don't have enough, enough uh, savings. They also often don't have the enough resources and they don't have the time to, uh, to kind of investigate and have a path. Uh, like a, uh, a clearly defined path to achieve financial freedom. I think that's, um, they're the one that are in trouble and I don't think they know about it. Yeah. If you read any Robert Kiyosaki books or, you know, authors like that, he wrote rich dad, poor dad, and also a few others, but he just talks about how the middle class is shrinking and yeah. it's getting dangerous. The gap between the haves and the have nots. And mm -hmm. at some point you're going to have to get on either side of the aisle. So that's why yeah. he encourages people to be wealthy, to invest in uh, income producing assets like real estate. Mm -hmm. So do you have any final points before we get on to the last section of our show? Oh, that's it. Very good. Very good. Well, uh, this part of the show is called the triple threat. We ask the same three questions to our guests. And the first one is what is the app resource or tool that has been the biggest game changer for your business? Well, I would say, well, there's a few, but I would say spreadsheet. I would say it's probably the best thing ever. <laughs> Our last ever. guest said that. Google Sheets. Yeah. Interesting. We wouldn't, we wouldn't have, we wouldn't have, the economy wouldn't be where it is today without spreadsheets. Yeah. And, uh, 
if I was the guy that invented, uh, was that VisiCalc was the first one that uh, he invented it and he gave it for free. And then. Oh, I couldn't tell you. Oh my then God. Microsoft Excel came along. When did that come? Then after I thought it was Lotus one, two, three and then Excel. And then, uh, so yeah, this is before your time. I'm sure. I'm an accountant, but that was way before <laughs> my time. Certainly. Oh yeah. 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 But yeah, look at the history of spreadsheet. The guy that invented it, it was like, he didn't ask for any money. He just thought, Oh yeah, this is like, this is a great tool for everybody. Let's, uh, like give it to, to them for free. And then somebody saw it and said, okay, let's do a business out of that. Yeah, I know people use spreadsheets for uh, budgets. What do you use it for? I use it for everything. Like I do a lot of statistical analysis to find the market, the best market for us to invest, but also okay. to uh, analyze uh, deals, obviously. And also we have like, like we have a number of deals in the in the pipeline right now. We have over 80, 80 deals at different stages of uh, of development. So we have a spreadsheet that basically pulls information from uh, from our CRM, from uh, different systems, and collate that. So we have a dashboard basically that shows us the status of every single property, and then we review that every day. Okay. What has been the biggest failure in the last year, and why do you think that happened? So I don't know. I don't have like a biggest failure. I guess I have some um, some things that. I have a few, pro we had a few projects, let's say that didn't work as well as intended, mm -hmm. that we were a little bit blindsided. Um, but I think that, and I think the reason for that was we didn't have the right partner. Uh, so we were trying to open a, a, a certain market at one point, And then we were just like, that partner was not fully uh, aware of the rules uh, around that market. And then we ended up having to go through a city inspection and they charged us like $25,000 of, of in additional repairs before we were able to resell the property. So we didn't make money on that house. Uh, mm -hmm. But in general, I mean, I don't, um, I do a lot, a lot of small bets on everything and uh, most of them pan out and some of them don't pan out as well, but most of them pan out. And even when we did businesses, I mean, we'd never lost money on, on any businesses. We had a gourmet sauce company. We had a low carb grocery store. We never lost, we never made money, money either, but we never lost it. Like we never made significant money, but it was fun learning. We call that learning experience, but uh, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. I heard a saying one time and it was from a, very successful businessman. He said, I want to be in a room full of failures. And yeah. <laughs> so I think you're more defined by your failures than your successes. Would you agree? But the nice yeah. thing about real estate is, is sometimes it's hard to fail because if you're getting good deals, then mm -hmm. like, for example, if you get a great deal on a house, it's hard to fail because you own an asset that's greater in value. And if mm -hmm. you're renting out a asset, a single family home, for example, in a very conservative, stable market to quality tenants, then it's really hard to fail. So, yeah. yeah. Would you agree? I totally agree. I totally mm -hmm. agree. So I didn't have big failure, but I did have um, no success. Like I had right. like lots of work and effort in things that didn't have the success I expected. Mm -hmm. So some people will call it failure, but yeah, I guess it were failure, but. I don't see it that I can, I don't see it like that. <laughs>
Okay, moving on from this one. Um, our podcast is all about helping others achieve freedom through real estate investing, hence the name, whether mm -hmm. that's financial, lifestyle, or otherwise. So what does freedom mean to you? Yeah, I mean, freedom is the, 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 the ability to do what you want when you want to do it. So, yeah. So sometimes you need some money to do, to do that. Uh, but most importantly, I mean, you need the time to do that. So if you want to go, uh, I want to spend two months in Europe, uh, you know, so you need some money to be able to do that. But most, most people would be, they wouldn't be able to take the time off from their job to, to do that as well. So yeah, it's a little bit of both. And obviously real estate is our preferred way to achieve that freedom mm -hmm. where you yeah. can take off from your job and not have to punch a clock or just reward your kids with your presence more often or yeah. give money to your church or your charity. So yeah. all that's yeah. very important. That's really the meaning of life here. Mm -hmm. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. So to wrap up the show, where can listeners get a hold of you to read your book or and whatnot? Yeah, so on my, I have my personal website, martelleric.com. Uh, you can also reach me on Instagram at E underscore Martel. On Facebook, I'm at eric.martel.ca. And our business website is martelturnkey.com, where we sell turnkey rental properties. Very good. I'll make sure my assistant gets all of those links in the notes. But yep. any last remarks before we uh, head our separate ways, Eric? Don't forget to buy my book. Yes, yes, certainly. <laughs> it's a good one. You'll want to read it. Yeah. So, well, thanks for your time. And it was an absolute pleasure to have you on the show and uh, sharing your knowledge with the listeners. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Dalen. Thank you for listening to the Real Estate Investing for Freedom podcast. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review. And tune in next week for the next episode.